I, I just never get tired of hearing what people tell me about what they see. Um, they, they, uh, recently, uh, somebody told me they saw their, their sister who, who had passed, and it was quite nice to mm. see her. Um, or somebody told me they saw a Victorian lady walking down the stairs. Um, and what's quite interesting about visual hallucinations in, in Parkinson's and in DLB is that um, they're nearly always people and animals. Uh, and, and I still think we don't really have an explanation for, for why that is. Psychotic symptoms are commonplace in both psychiatric and neurological practice, and they are perhaps one of the most challenging groups of symptoms to try and investigate and treat. In this Tease Neuro podcast, we look in detail at psychosis in Parkinson's, both in patients with dementia and in those with more normal cognition. We learn how to spot psychosis and how to identify the risk factors that lead to its development. We take a practical tour of which medications can help and which ones can hinder. We also spend quite a lot of time chatting about clozapine, so prepare yourself for that. I wanted to just do a, a quick introduction of, of the three... What are we? Are we faculty? I don't know what we are. Experts? We've, no, had, enough of, no, we've, no. we've had enough of that. Anyway, um, so I, I'm going to introduce people one by one, and we're just going to have a little chat about psychosis and uh, in general terms and also more specifically. So, so our, kinda, our first expert... Dr. Ross Dunn. So Ross, so I'm right in thinking you trained in Dublin. I did initially, yes, yeah, yeah. And then um, you were in Cambridge as an yep. NAHR academic clinical fellow. Yes. And you're now a consultant in Greater Manchester Mental Health Trust. That's right, the last five years. Last five years. And I, it's, I, I was looking at your, your blurb mm-hmm. and feeling inadequate uh, as a result. <laughs> <laughs> so Don't. Clinical Director of the Greater Manchester Dementia Research Centre, Honorary Senior Lecturer at University of Manchester. Yeah, that doesn't even pay, Archie. I know, I know, but still, it sounds good. Um, obviously, we know each other pretty well from the Neurology Academy and the Parkinson's Academy, don't we? And actually, randomly from the MS Academy. Yes. Um, and then uh, you've got a kind of a interesting, kind of really diverse research interest, prediction models, biomarkers, machine learning, Design and teach free open source course in R programming and data science for doctors. So I have a, a pet project, which is called uh, Stats for Shrinks, which um, is a kind of a work in progress, but it's about teaching um, uh, your, your ordinary hire trainee how to analyze data because so many of them only you know how to use sort of SPSS and point and click. Yeah. So um, a little bit of a dipping their toes in that. But mostly what I do is kind of recruit people to disease modifier trials and Alzheimer's and other diseases. And um, yes, I have an interest in biomarkers because I think we, we need to try and get that off the ground in, in England. Right. It's off the ground elsewhere and we need to try and start to diagnose people a bit earlier with neurodegenerative disease. Oh, that's a very good point. Also still, are you still a wilderness physician? I am still a wilderness physician, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think you, the, the credentialing lasts till next year and then I have to go back to Scotland again. All right. And you think, and I like this, you think being an NHS consultant is like navigating in a whiteout? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah, that, definitely. No idea where you're going. But we have to bring everybody <laughs> with you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like just, it's a faith thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, Ross, I was thinking, as we were, I was thinking about the title for this um, session and I, I realized I've been a consultant for a decade pretty much now as a neurologist. Mm. And I'm not even really sure I know what psychosis is. Oh, go on, Archie, you do. I don't, like, well, I'm not sure I do. Like, so uh, assuming, I'm, assuming I'm right that I don't, how should I be thinking about psychosis? 
Okay, well, you can think about it in a couple of ways. You can think about it, and this is the the the, the spiel. So, um, you can you can give the medical students the nineteenth century version of psychosis, which is a bunch of phenomena which kind of hang together, and we label them with German names, Gedankenlautwerden, uh, and and what have you, and we can kind of, um, it, it's like a botanical clustering of phenomena, and that's traditionally how medicine has progressed. We subtyped and subtyped diseases. Everybody has diabetes if they're weeing an awful lot and then somebody has the guts to taste the wee wee and we decide that that's diabetes mellitus um, and the rest is diabetes insipidus and we gradually subtype and subtype until we have type 1 and type 2 and modi and and we're down to genetic sort of fingerprints now in diabetes and it's a very long very old disease we kind of know what we're talking about in terms of diabetes more or less um, mm. whereas the brain's a bit complicated and um, people don't like you taking samples of it at all and they like to hang on to it so you reduce the sort of triangulating phenomena in the brain. That means using neuroimaging. It means looking at behavior. It means looking at development and looking at language, speech, thought, what people report, all of those kinds of things. So progress is a bit slower, I have to say. Um, so if you, if you leave that botanical clustering behind um, and you look at sort of what tends to hang together and, 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 and you, you try and push towards an understanding of psychosis, then what you, you develop in the sort of late 20th century is a bit more of an understanding of psychosis as the, the reductio ad absurdum, the, the right end of a spectrum of perception, that it's about perception, perception about yourself, perception about the world around you, as well as sort of thought patterns and things like that. So if I give you a little bit of a normalizing example, it's kind of interesting. So uh, if you remember being um, sort of 16, I know it was a long time ago, Archie, you're going to have to cast your mind. Yeah, but sadly if you, ever, if, you ever, if you remember walking into a room, if people, if, if you went, went into a room and people went quiet and looked at you as you came mm. into the room, you might have jumped to a kind of a conclusion as an adolescent that they were, what, talking about you? Mm-hmm. And maybe as an adolescent, you might have thought, oh, it probably wasn't all that positive. You know, you might have flushed red and there was a couple of giggles and you might have carried that around all day. Mm. Um, normally, as an adult, you kind of brush it off and dismiss it and we're too busy to care. So you don't carry that idea around you. But you jump to a conclusion nonetheless. You kind of pattern match about what's going on in the world. What, what might be going on? You try and mind read. But imagine your, your mood is really low. Imagine you're, you're having the worst day you've ever had and, and you think that you know, you're no good as a person and that you're not really worth anything. And not only that, but your future is not worth, worth much. Um, and then uh, you might start to overinterpret a lot of what is going on around you. You might really start to think that people are, are talking about you, perhaps behind your back or jump to conclusions about you. And you might start to internalize some of that as, as not really being a very good person or being very worthwhile. And that's the beginnings of, of, of the psychotic phenomena. And um, what we used to think of it as a kind of a psychotic break, but actually as we studied the emergence of psychosis in younger people, we know that there are transitional states, we call them at-risk mental states. And these, if you treat them, reduce the onset of psychosis. So they are really a sort of a pre-diabetes in terms of mental illness and, and something mm-hmm. that we need to pay attention to. Um, some of the things that go on in psychosis are really disturbing, but the important thing to understand as a clinician is that it comes to people, and the more you talk to people, the more you get this sense, um, at least in, in terms of schizophrenia and, and other um, traditional psychiatric illnesses, these come to people with the power of a realization. So it's not that um, things are stranger when you're psychotic, although sometimes they are. Sometimes they come to people with a parrot, actually, now the world makes sense. So I used to think that there were a lot of red cars going up and down my road, and it didn't make much sense. But now I understand 
that actually the CIA are plotting against me. So it, it does make more sense. And mm. that's what, why it's so very hard to break into some of this thinking. So very hard to put yourself in other positions. And in fact, Carl Jasper is one of the founders of modern psychopathology, he wrote a book called General Psychopathology. And he said that, it, that uh, one of the characteristics of psychosis, as opposed to neurosis, was that it was ununderstandable. You couldn't empathize with it. It was very difficult to put yourself in that position. It's not totally true. If you meet enough people with psychosis, you could start to understand it. But it generally stands to reason that it's more difficult to put yourself in that position where the world is a very strange place with a very strange fingerprint. And these things um, occur in bits and pieces in Parkinson's, for example, with an emphasis in some areas and, and a sort of a de-emphasis in other areas. But um, that sense of uh, jumping to conclusions and a, a pattern matching mecha mechanism in the brain, which has gone awry, is, is, is how I would tend to explain it to, to medical students, for example, or people who are interested. Well, I am, I'm not a medical student, but I'm interested. But I, I do find that medical student explanations work well on me. Mm. Um, okay, that's really helpful. So... If we come to Dr. Christine Taylor next. Christine, hi, Christine. Yes. So you're an old age psychiatrist in Derbyshire um, uh, with a special interest in mental health aspects in Parkinson's. And you input into my good friend Rob Skelly's service, don't you, in uh, Derby, which is an award-winning, multi-award winning service really in the UK. Um, and we were chatting earlier before any of the de uh, kind of delegates came in about um, feeling your pain about having recently successfully set up a clozapine service, which is one of the reasons I was really keen if you were free to, to kind of come in on the, on the call, because I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, it's, but up, it's, up, it's up and running, but we haven't actually had any patients go through it yet. So I don't know whether we can say it's set up until we've... Oh, no, I think, yeah, I think we can, we're ready can, to go, though. <laughs> you can claim it as a win. Yeah. Um, and I, what I wanted to do was... Uh, just, I mean, obviously, Ross has been talking a little bit about this kind of broader concept of psychosis, which obviously occurs, and the, part, the reason for the call like this evening is because it occurs so much in Parkinson's. But like, for, for, uh, for people who maybe aren't ma massively familiar either with mental health problems or with Parkinson's, and sort of like junior doctors or medical students, even if they're on the call, what should, what should we be looking out for in a Parkinson's patient like alarm bells wise that should be making us think uh, there's a kind of potential psychosis brewing here there's a problem coming mm -hmm. yeah what do you want to what do you want to look out for yeah i mean i think it because it can be very very complex people can present in so many different different ways and i think one of the things that i found most helpful in clinical practice is to have a bit bit of a, a structure or a model in my head to think about about where the person is on, on that scale of psychosis. So hmm. there's quite a, a useful concept called the neuropsychiatric slippery slope. Um, and you can sort of think when you're talking to patients about where they might fit onto, onto that model. So um, people might present initially with things like reduced um, sleep pattern. They might then start to get daytime somnolence and those would be the first sort of steps on that, on that slope. Um, the next step down would be if they were to start to get illusions or, you know, sense of presence illusions, but they've still got insight about them. So um, some perceptual abnormalities. Moving on from there, it might slide down into then starting to get more prominent um, REM sleep issues. And then we sort of move on to sort of more full-blown psychotic symptoms, so hallucinations um, and, and delusions. So I, I think it's sort of thinking about where people are on that scale. And at the top of the scale, they might not be distressed by their symptoms. They might have a good degree of insight into what's going on. 
it might be a case of doing some education with them and, and, and their carers to explain you know what's happening but as you get further down that scale things start to become more more problematic and then you're looking at you know whether you need to be uh, starting treatments and things and at, at the far end of the scale you've got a very sort of more complex um, sort of organic confusional state which would have hallucinations and delusions and, and you know more complex symptoms so I think for me when I'm speaking to patients that, that's what we're thinking about where are they on that scale are we getting to the point where actually this is impacting quality of life you know they're losing their insight perhaps things that things are getting more complex and, and it's time now to be looking at the, the treatment yeah and I, th and I don't know like I've, I'm a simple soul in general but um, I think from my experience I used to think that psychosis purely resided in the context of dementia in my patients with Parkinson's mm. um, I, I'm wrong about that really aren't I, I was wrong about that because I, 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 I mean as an old age psychiatrist I think I, I tend to see older patients who will tend to present more with with psychosis with it within a, a Parkinson's dementia but yes I mean you're right there's probably sort of those two categories isn't there there's the early onset psychosis um, that might be related more to sort of medication and things like that and then as things progress um, sorry and the, the other group would be sort of a later onset occurring in the context of cognitive in, impairments and I think there's some interesting questions then about treatment options and and things like that um, it's like that, you know, like that sort of bumper sticker. You don't have to be, you don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. It's like you, you, you don't have to have dementia to hallucinate, but it helps, exactly. sort of thing. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I want to talk um, very specifically about hallucinations with Ramona Wild, uh, Dr. Ramona Wild, who uh, we know each other pretty well, Ramona. I think for meetings and bits and bobs. So, um, so you graduated from Cambridge, studied at uh, also at UCL uh, in London and did your neuro training in the National Hospital and at the Royal Free. And you're now a consultant at, the, at, the, at Queen Square. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and an honorary, so you're honorary consultant neurologist and Welcome Trust clinician scientist. And we know each other specifically because both kind of into visual hallucinations. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm just, before we get into those, I'm aware that there are some text questions coming in. I will answer these in a minute or two because I, I think they're all very pertinent. But um, what visual hallucinations seem to be like a very unique or very specific thing to kind of our patient group. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to get your take on like what sort of visual, like hallucinatory experiences, visual or otherwise, that you see. Yeah. So, so I, I run a clinic where I, I tend to see patients who either have uh, Parkinson's dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies or sort of are in, in that zone. And so I am sort of seeing the, the older stage. And, and what, what we tend to see with, with the visual hallucinations is, is quite often earlier on in, in the disease, they're, they're more like illusions or misperceptions where people might make a mistake. So I talk about that they might see a pile of clothes on the floor and then for a minute it looks like a dog and then they look again and, and, it, and, and it's just a pile of clothes. And, and that, that can, there's quite a lot of that in, in early Parkinson's. Um, or, or people say they'll see a leaf in the garden and it, it looks like a bird, but it's just a leaf. But then as the disease progresses, there start to be more, more complex hallucinations and where there's perception of, of, a, of an object in the absence of anything else. Um, so, so that's when people start describing seeing children or people. 
Um, and, and it's amazing. I mean, I, I just never get tired of hearing what people tell me about what they see. Um, they, they, uh, recently, uh, somebody told me they saw their, their sister who, who had passed and it was quite nice to mm. see her. Um, or somebody told me they saw a Victorian lady walking down the stairs. Um, and what's quite interesting about visual hallucinations in, in Parkinson's and in DLB is that um, they're nearly always people and animals. Uh, and, and I still think we don't really have an explanation for, for why that is. Um, and also, and, and I'd be interested to know what, what Ross and Christine think about this in that, and I, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a neurologist, but my understanding is that hallucinations in psychiatry strictly are that you have to believe that they're real. Whereas visual hallucinations in, in Parkinson's seem to be in their own kind of special category in that in the moment they can feel very real, but patients then to, to start to recognize that they're, they're quite stereotyped, they often see the same thing. So they start with time, they realize that these are their hallucinations. So often insight is lost in the moment, but in general, they, people often have insight into their hallucinations. Okay. There, I mean, Christine was talking about the slippy slope. I have a little in my head, like the slippy slope that there's kind of, you know, the visual passage, the feelings of presence, the mm -hmm. illusory misperception and the complex visual hallucinations. Am I, am I right to sort of categorize them as some that, uh, I mean, there's a question coming in, are, are like, are, pre, are pure visual hallucinations a marker of psychosis? in their own right um and and like some of them i've I'm, I'm more comfortable with my patients talking to me about thinking okay uh, i'm not too worried about that one other ones are i'm like uh oh that's a big red flag is that is that your experience as well yeah i think you're right so the, the passage where they just kind of in the periphery of their vision um that that's quite common and and I, I don't think many people really put that in the kind of realms of psychosis um but when they're seeing people or setting the table for them have that mm. quite a lot uh, bringing out food for people so that is a, is a bit more of a, of a red flag yeah okay and i mean christine from your experience because you've seen loads i mean we've all seen loads of this but um you know are there ones that worry you more when you see your patients so what ramona says about the complexity of, of what the hallucination is is doing and you know when it starts to become distressing or um you know, problematic or it's there all the time. So I suppose the, the severity and the frequency of it as well, to a degree. Um, okay. Yeah. Good. And I, I think, um, I mean, there's another interesting question, which we'll, we'll come back to, I think, which is, you know, how do you differentiate between a, a drug-induced complication? Like what, how much is disease? How much is treatment of disease? And, you know, can you ever really tell? But I, I do want to come back to that, but I might do that. Uh, momentarily. Ramona, can we come back to you for a minute? Because I think um, uh, the most striking visual uh, hallucinatory experiences are visual. Mm -hmm. And I and I get obviously very drawn to those as well. Um, but there's quite a lot of other sort of hallucinatory stuff going on in PD and DLB. What sort of things do you, like, how do you kind of bring that out in your clinic and what do you look for? So, I mean, so Across different modalities, I mean, you've mentioned um, sense of a presence, or mm. sort of, it's also called extra campine hallucinations, where somebody can walk into a room and it just feels like there's somebody there and they look around and there isn't. Mm. Um, I kind of grade that as the early, you know, if we're talking about slippery slope, as fairly, fairly early. Mm -hmm. um, and then in other modalities, so visual hallucinations tend to come first. So auditory hallucinations are, are really less, far less common in Parkinson's. Yeah. And, and when they do happen, they tend to 
happen after visual hallucinations or, or might sometimes form a soundtrack, although I've, in my experience that's quite rare. Um, and I have had one patient who told me that the hallucinations held up signs that, and the signs were saying horrible things about him, um, but, hmm. but not actually hearing anything. Um, and I have heard some people so olfactory that they, they can be, but they're, they're so much rarer. I mean, by far the most common are, are, the, are the visual ones. I mean, I do ask about them. So I think that the way to bring it out, and even with visual hallucinations, if you don't ask about it, you could, have, you could go through a whole consultation and not hear it because people are sort of a bit reticent to, mm. to say that they're experiencing them. So, uh, how, do, how, do you, how do you get that out of folk if they aren't going to volunteer, how do you kind of, how do you sneak it out of people? <laughs> if you ask, they do say actually. Oh, um, so yeah, I mean, do you ever, do you ever see anything that's not there? And people, people will, will say something, uh, sometimes mm. a bit sheepishly, but they will say. Yeah. Um, actually, sometimes there are people with more advanced dementia, well, they'll totally deny it. And then the carer will say, yes, you just said the other day that you saw all these people. So there's different reasons for not, for not volunteering it. I think, I think one of the questions I start with, which always, which, and the answer to this is always yes, is do you have any problems with your eyes? And you then have to brace yourself for at least five minutes of my vision's very blurry and I haven't had my eyes checked in a while and I need new glasses. Mm -hmm. um, and then I often ask about double vision mm -hmm. because that's also quite common actually, weirdly in, in PD. But then that sort of normalizes discussion around vision. Uh, and then you can sneak in some other little questions then about, well, yeah, it's a replay tricks on you. That's a, yeah. So I think it's sometimes how I do it. Um, Ross, um, mm. I just wanted, like, from your point of view, obviously, because um, Ramona and I are neurologists and Christine and, and, and you are um, psychiatrists. The, I've had a few folk over the years where there's quite like a, a sort of weirdly tactile component to their hallucinations and, and a delusional component that sort of sneaks in around that. Yeah. Um, I've had patients who freeze, which is obviously a motor phenomenon, mm -hmm. but then have a delusional kind of somebody's holding them. Yes. Or it's really interesting because can't turn over in bed because somebody's yeah. lying on them. And, and if you, and again, so eliciting these symptoms from people is all about normalizing it because um, when we start out explaining Parkinson's to people at least, at least let's say 10 years ago, I hope this is changing, but this was the disease of shaking and the disease of slowness. And so when people, when these neuropsychiatric consequences appear, appear in people, they, they think something else has happened. It's not, they don't jump to the conclusion that it's actually Parkinson's. So it's really important to put this in the context of Parkinson's for people so they're not outrageously frightened and they can tell you. This is, there's nothing that is occurring to you that, that is not explicable by Parkinson's disease. Um, and, and that helps people, I think, um, sort of spill the beans in clinic. But the other thing is to slide into it as you're doing with visual symptoms, you know, actually, these, this is a normal um, uh, experience. Do you ever have trouble with your eyes? Sometimes people with Parkinson's will have experience X, or it wouldn't be unusual for you to have experience X. But then the, 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 the layer of explanation for people who are interested is that um, your brain is, is constantly trying to fill in the gaps constantly trying to fill in the gaps to make a sensible picture of the world. It's like uh, if you've got a, a jigsaw with missing pieces, you will have a brain that fills in the missing pieces. And that's really what, for me, illusions and hallucinations are. Hallucinations are when you've only got the edge of the, of the jigsaw and everything else is filled in. And illusions are when you've got more bits and pieces. And that's why I find that kind of 19th century distinction between illusions and hallucinations a bit daft, really, knowing what we know about the neuroscience. But if you can normalize that for people, they'll really try help, it really help them make sense of it. So if you can say that actually, you know, you're, you're freezing in bed 
and there's things we can do about that and that might in turn help your your psychotic explanation the brain's explanation for that phen phenomenon so whether it's silk sheets or whether it's changing your your dopamine dose and, and dosing you at night that may help but the important thing is to report it when it happens and don't be frightened by it because because you know too often people will keep it to themselves and actually i've had exactly the same experiences as Ramona, where people with less cognitive um, reserve, shall we say, or more cognitive impairment, don't realize they've lost insight and sometimes they can't remember that they've had the experience. But equally, I've had people with loads of cognitive reserve who are loath to report it because they don't recognize it as a symptom of Parkinson's and they haven't even reported it to the partner. So if you can encourage them to have a dialogue about it and do the checking. So, um, you know, uh, Mary, I see a spider up on the wall. Uh, is there a spider there? No. They're, okay, excellent. Parkinson's has kicked in, we'll take a few minutes and maybe turn up the lights because that's something we haven't talked about yet. Is information in is really important. If you can dial up the amount of information coming through those sensory portals, you can reduce the, the workload of the brain, reduce that sort of what Ramon is about to talk about, which I think is top-down processing, the amount of work the brain has to do to fill in the jigsaw. And you can really, really relieve people. Um, uh, I've had people who are standing at the kitchen sink um, and their, their um, delusions and, and hallucinations went up and down with the, um, the year. So as the days uh, sort of got shorter, the onset of hallucinations became sort of six o'clock, five o'clock, four o'clock as the, as the, the, the um, uh, atmosphere got darker. And then as uh, summer came, they started to, to have longer days free of hallucinations. That, that I've seen a couple of times. We, we resolved a lot of it by replacing light bulbs, which is not a traditional psychiatric skill, but um, <laughs> and lends itself to any number of jokes. Any number of jokes. <laughs> None of which are complimentary to neurologists, I'll wager. Um, Ramona, I, I'm always struck, I think, by um, how differently a dimension Parkinson's or DLB presents clinically to Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And there seem to be like sort of signature symptoms that would pull you well away from a diagnosis of Alzheimer's into a diagnosis of DLB or, or PD dementia, say. For, let's kind of lump those two things together for a mo as a, as a kind of Lewy body dementia syndrome. Mm. Why do, I don't know which way to phrase this, why do Alzheimer's patients not hallucinate? <laughs> or why do Parkinson's ones and P DLB ones see all, so much? Yeah, I mean, so it's so interesting and it, and it comes down to what, it, why, where do hallucinations come from? Um, and I think part, partly we, we we still don't know. There's been loads of work on it, loads of neuroimaging work on hallucinations. And, and I, I think we don't have a clear answer. Uh, in fact, there are lots of answers, which always tells you that, that we still don't know. Um, <laughs> Just comforting. Yeah. Um, I, th I think why, why PDDLB more so than Alzheimer's? I, I, I think there's a, a, probably sort of a, 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 a two or three critical things going on in Parkinson's more so than in Alzheimer's. One of them is what Ross was saying about um, visual processing being in, impaired in Parkinson's so that the information going in is, is, is more affected. Um, and you mentioned actually, uh, Archie, about the blurred vision. Um, it's quite interesting, quite a lot of people who have had hallucinations have also got these kind of soft visual signs. Mm. So the information coming up from the visual system is, is, not, is, is, is not right in PD and DLB. Um, then, it, then it's also probably the connection. So it's this top-down, bottom-up, that the, the connections in the brain, are, are, that whenever 
whenever any of us are seeing anything, we're, it's vision itself, healthy vision is an active process. We're always making sense of the world. So we, we see what we see and then we, we relate it to what we already know. And it's that top-down control that, that's um, impaired in, in PD dementia. Um, and actually we've done a little bit of work on this um, using some diffusion imaging and, and we've shown that some of the connections going from the thalamus back to the back of the brain are, are affected in people who hallucinate and in people who've got visual problems in Parkinson's. Um, and then there's the thalamus itself. So the, the thalamus is like this deep old structure of the, of the brain that kind of conducts all the different brain networks. Um, and there seems to be uh, some changes in the thalamus that possibly, have, I don't know if it's more affected in PD dementia than in, than in Alzheimer's, but it, it, I think it's probably a combination of those three elements uh, being impacted. So like, so this idea of, I suppose, because, uh, you know, one of the things we do sometimes see uh, sort of on, in eye departments is hallucinating patients with visual impairment mm -hmm. and a Charles Bonnet syndrome, which yeah. um, is pretty common, I think. Although qualitatively, what they're seeing is rather different, I think, than what our that's patients are seeing. But that, I guess that's the kind of archetypal bottom-up kind of yeah. input problem. So Dominic Fitch did a whole bunch of work on this, looking at mm. the different groups of people who have hallucinations and people in eye clinic um, who have hallucinations. Well, I mean, what's interesting about that group is that um, you would think that it would be more common that actually if it's just about the bottom up, then everybody with visual impairment in, in general should have hallucinations. And we don't really see that. Mm. Um, and then what they do to, in Charles' body, it tends to be kind of more sort of primitive, so blobs and shapes rather than these kind of com complex sort of forms and, and, and animals that, that people see. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of bottom up, then there's this sort of your cognitive reserve, which I think has been mentioned a few times, this kind of idea that you've got a certain amount that you can then of headroom, mm. if you like cognitive headroom with which you can use to monitor your balance when you're walking or select visual uh, input and make sense of that. Um, and so is it, so that's the top down bit you're referring to. Is that right, Ramona? Yeah. And the sort of the connections between, between the two, so, that, I mean, Ross, you've done lots of work on, uh, on, on perception and, and sort of prior knowledge, uh, if, if I'm right. And actually, it seems to be that people who hallucinate are using prior knowledge too much um, so that they're over-relying on, on what they already know. So there's, there's, there's impaired information going in and then they're over-relying on, on what they already know so that they're, that's what's leaning them towards seeing uh, these hallucinations. Can um, I bring you in on that then, Ross, and just... Uh... Kind of develop yeah, so I mean, uh, I'll give you the example of the 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 person who is hallucinating at the uh, at the at the kitchen sink, um, a long-standing service man who you know done done national service but then stayed in the army for some 30, 40 years, and what he was seeing was Gurkhas dancing on the fence. Now, I, there's no there's no brain disease that would make me see Gurkhas dancing on the fence. Um, so so you're 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 bringing your whole personality, your whole life experience to bear on what you on, on on the information in which you fill you fill in the gaps with essentially, um, and that's why so, I think sometimes it can be really comforting, um, especially if there's retained insight and and the stranger it is, the the more perhaps the more elemental it is in certain ways it can be more can be more frightening. If you see a tiger and you don't have good insight or you you have a temporary lapse in insight, that can be quite frightening as you can might imagine um but again in in the clinic it's about sort of normalizing that teasing it out into a normal spectrum and and analyzing people's sort of expectations and reassuring them there are, there are certain things we can do about them not all of them are brilliant so expectation management is, is really important you know but i often will offer people if we could get this 20 percent better 
you know, would you would that be an acceptable sort of improvement for you? And people will, I think, will appreciate that. So I suppose having kind of identified that there are these kind of hallucinatory experiences and there are these abnormal perceptions and kind of abnormal thinking that goes with that, then um, for me, sometimes it's that abnormal thinking associated with it that's the hardest bit, um, both to manage and very much for the kind of caregivers in particular. Yeah, especially if you've, if you've got, you know, which is not uncommon in Othello syndrome or um, delusions of, of infidelity, that can be very, very difficult to deal with. And, that, and that's a particularly risky situation. We see it outside of Parkinson's and people who have alcohol misuse syndromes, um, but also people who don't. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a psychiatric red flag. It's one that you would want to take to a multidisciplinary team and discuss at length in terms of risk and other, and other aspects. But yeah. you're right, it drives incredible distress from the carer because it seems bizarre. This is a 40-year relationship, perhaps, and, and um, there's no... Uh, the, the sense of, of sort of guilt and self-justification can spiral the experience completely out of control for people. You know, emotions get raised and then rationale disappears completely. And there was a, actually a mention, there was a question about Othello syndrome um, I can just try and find it. Um, gosh, they're coming thick and fast, the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the question was something around about, you know, is the Othello syndrome sort of dopamine driven purely? Or is it, I, I, feeling, I've, I feel it's got to be more complicated than that. But Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a, a, a mono, um, I'm not a monoamine <laughs> reductionist, I think. <laughs> um, I nearly said, nearly said monotheistic. I haven't heard of I'm not a monoamine reductionist. I think, um, you know, we're starting to realize that, guess what? Brain's a bit complex, complex. And that's partly why we haven't cracked a lot of this stuff. So mm-hmm. um, uh, I think, uh, um, you know, just, be, just because you've, you've um, got a deficit in a particular area of the brain doesn't mean that that area is responsible for the plugging of that deficit solely this is the whole deficit problem of, of modeling the brain so just because you've got an, a brain injury and now you can no longer recognize your goldfish it doesn't mean that that's the rec- the goldfish recognizing part of the brain and 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 we, we need to move away from that i think there's are very complex systems involved and the visual system there's no lobe that is not involved in the visual system Mm-hmm. Okay. There's, there's nothing. There's no part of the brain that is not involved in the visual system. Similarly, you can have cerebellar damage and have an affective syndrome. So I think we need to move away from this sort of reductionist low brain model. It's not bad for trying to explain and run experiments, but but as a, a holistic understanding of what's going on in the brain, it kind of fails. So Othello syndrome, yes, it's associated with alcohol misuse. Yes, it's associated with Parkinson's. Do they have anything in common? might have dopamine in common but they've also got an awful lot more in common and um, significant brain atrophy and uh, alcohol misuses over a long period of time i feel um, i feel like i've singularly failed in my uh job as a, a kind of moderator because uh, there's a, a question has come in it just says what is othello syndrome oh right uh, i feel like a so, bad person um, no no it's it, 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 i i would uh, point people towards shakespeare um but um <laughs> Uh, so uh, it's a delusion of infidelity. So essentially, where somebody has um, a very profound belief that that their partner, um, girlfriend, or, or uh, boyfriend, husband, or, or um, wife is having an affair with somebody else, usually a defined person, occasionally a couple of people, um, and it, it will drive people to search phones, search email records, um, search the laundry basket for evidence of infidelity, um, strip the sheets, and hire a, a private investigator. Um, and 
the, 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 the catch-22 for, for psychiatrists here is that often drives the couple apart and can in fact drive the, the, the person into the, the arms of another, thereby mm. proving the delusion true. It's the, it's the, the classic feedback circle. But, but actually most of the time they, they manage to hold it together. And what we do for alcohol is reduce the amount of, of um, alcohol consumed and we introduce maybe a smidge at, at low doses of an antipsychotic. And I think that that can sometimes be helpful in Parkinson's as well, but we're probably about to get into antipsychotics. Well, in yeah, and I was going to, I just wanted to bring, to yeah, I wanted to bring Christine in um, on, because she were talking before anybody arrived about other kind of delusional states. So the kind of um, infidelity delusions, which are really distressing and difficult and really do drive a wedge between like a really important caregiver and oh. a patient sometimes. Um, there's also this sort of weird sort of um, misidentification of a familiar person as somebody else or in extreme circumstances, the notion that that person has been replaced or is an imposter. Um, is that something that you see a fair bit in your clinical practice? Yeah, I mean, we do see quite a bit of capgrass in the context of Parkinson. So um, the delusion that the person's been replaced uh, by someone else or um, and sort of lots of other things like thinking people are coming into the house, taking things, delusions of theft. Um, yeah, sorry, my mind's gone a bit. Wrong. Well, yeah, and <laughs> I think one that's, can answer. Yeah, but I'm thinking that um, I find that a really difficult one. Um, that sort of uh, it's just a very puzzling sort of thing. Uh, again, there seem to be grades of that. Uh, I've had. Uh, um, Kind of patients who, I don't know, like a, a chap who, who had like three versions of his wife, mm-hmm. and they all had a slightly different role yeah. <laughs> in his care. Um, the one and the bad one. I've had. Um, so there's a good. Are you the good wife today or the bad wife? Um, mm-hmm. Or a or son seen as, seen as twins. Um, and the other one, the other part of that is delusional misidentification of, of their own home. So they're mm-hmm. at home, but they believe that they're somewhere else, and they're constantly yeah. packing so that they can go home. Yes. Um, and yeah. I think that's a really, like when you ask that, people look at you like you've got some sort of psychic powers, which might not be helpful in the context, <laughs> but, you know, because you said, do you ever feel like your house is different? And so and they go, oh, you know, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had a patient who was so convinced he wasn't in his right home that the family used to take him for a drive around the village. Yes, oh, that's clever. And, and then it- bring him back. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes by the time they'd done a loop. Yeah. It was like, oh, we're home. So, and, and one of my patients told me a very similar thing. That um, so the he thought the wife was a different person. So she developed the strategy where she'd say, oh, um, Deborah, Deborah's not here. It wasn't Deborah, but Deborah's not here. I'll, I'll go and get her. And she would go out the room and come back again and say, here I am. <laughs> and and, and that, that sometimes it can work. Obviously, it's not always as, as easy as that. Um, yeah. But finding a strategy because fighting the delusion head on doesn't doesn't work. No, no. yeah, and bashing heads is, is it was never a good. It's a bad philosophy for most things. Um, I wanted to think a little bit, which because I, I think, you know, um, I feel like I have a sort of a toolkit for asking questions, but it's very sort of homespun and <laughs> um, kind of experiential learned over time. Is, is there, uh, Ross, uh, are there things in it that we should have in our toolkit, like specific things? Um, I'm not... F- I'm a like I'm a busy clinician, so like questionnaires just about do me in. But are yeah. there things? Is there anything we can use to make our assessments more standardised or consistent? 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not a massive fan of questionnaires. There are questionnaires about psychosis and perceptual abnormalities in Parkinson's. Um, I, I, I tend to find that um, as, as unlikely as somebody is to disclose something, if you answer it in an off-the-cuff way, they're much more likely to not to disclose it if you put, put a tick box in front of them. Mm. Um, I suppose I, I give the example sometimes of, of, for medical students, again, of suicidality. There's a couple of ways of asking about suicidality. And again, this is something that happens in Parkinson's. It should be asked about um, you can you can be um, the person who says you're not thinking of doing anything silly, are you? Or you can be the person who actually introduces it with questions about sleep, not wanting to wake up in the morning, asking about this, the slippery slope of suicidality, if you like. One one is designed to not get the question, the the answer you don't want, and the other one is designed to elicit the truth. And and you really want to be eliciting the truth if you want to release uh, reduce patients' distress. So I, I think starting from a normalizing perspective, um, if you gain people's trust, the rapport building is not to be dismissed at all. You can ramp up quite quickly into sort of strange questions. Um, but building the rapport is not time wasted in any way, shape, or form. If you build a rapport and you you say about it, the encounter, look, we're not going to have time to answer all of your questions, and we will come back to it. Some of it might be answered in the letter. I will try and address everything that you have you have concerns about, but I might have to interrupt you from time to time to get at, the, at a bit of detail. You've apologized for burning the rapport then in advance, and, and you can really drill down for some quite serious information. Um, but I would I would say normalize, normalize, normalize. So it wouldn't be unusual for 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 you to experience this. There's nothing that I'm going to ask you about that isn't explainable by Parkinson's. And uh, for everything I ask you about, while we haven't got a cure, there's something we can do to reduce your distress in this domain. And that means that people have a sort of a, tr a transaction with you when they're offering you the information. They realize that it's not just going out into the void or you're not going to write it down as you know give, to give them the crazy stamp. You're you're going to give them something in re in return. That's a really good tip. I, I find um, learned the hard way because uh, for a long time I was uh, Professor David Burns Registrar in uh, Newcastle and nobody ever wanted to see me, ever. Because they all wanted to see David. Um, such a gem. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, people, and so you, had, you had to credential yourself as a... This is a very good tip for junior doctors, okay? Anybody on the call. Um, if you're somebody's registrar and they look like they're a bit crestfallen that they aren't seeing the boss... And I would make a, a careful point of reading a couple of the previous clinic letters and trying to find some uh, reference to sort of symptoms that patients might not think we would know about, um, specifically like the visual things or the dream enactment or that kind of thing. And I would, um, when I was trying to build a rapport with the patient, because I wanted them to go away felt, feeling like they'd had a valuable consultation and not that they'd just seen the junior doctor, I would say, look, in my experience, um, sometimes patients with Parkinson's will have this unusual thing when they're, when they're asleep, where they act out their dreams. Has that ever happened to you? Like, I know, and I, I would know that would happening, was happening to them. And they'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that definitely happens. And, or, uh, oh, you know, sense of smell can sometimes be a thing. You know, and, and so these were kind of loss leader questions, really, um, in some respects, in order, like, it's a, like, I'm not a total imbecile, uh, and you can tell me stuff and I might be able to help. And I, I think is that that's sort of a little bit what you're getting at, really, Ross, is like setting the scene for a good therapeutic relationship, yeah? That, that and expectation management. I think it's really important for people to know that, yes, these are all explicable by Parkinson's, but also we are not in the business of, you know, we don't have any disease modifiers and nothing I start you on um, in terms of medications from today is going gonna, is gonna to cure it all. You're, you're going to be living with some of these symptoms. So, so that, that people really appreciate honesty.
they yes. really do um, and they, what they really don't appreciate is bullshit um, <laughs> and, and they, can, they can smell it a mile off so yeah. you know you really got to be upfront with people about what you're going to be able to do for them uh, I want to come on um, uh, and bring Christine in a minute on specifically about kind of approaching like therapeutic approaches and, and particularly non-pharmacological ones because I'm a very much a reacher for the prescription pad and I recognize that in myself and I have to kind of hold myself back um, there is a flurry of questions before um, we get into that, though, which are kind of, I'm trying to theme them um, around, um, you know, this idea about uh, dopaminergic drugs and the driving this. And I've definitely had that in my interactions with um, psychiatrists in the past where it's, it's, I feel it's very strongly not a drug, a simple drug problem. Um, and very strongly, the view comes back that this is just, you know, I just need to reduce their levodopa or take or take put them on a levodopa holiday, horrendously suggested recently. Um, and so, like, and, and that comes across. And there's a couple of questions there, not just about that, but also about this kind of trying to pull apart, like, is psych can psychosis and Parkinson's exist in the absence of dementia, mm. and is it materially different in some way? Um, I don't know how best to kind of draw that. I mean, you're nodding sagely, Ramona, so I'm going to come to you. <laughs> well, that you brought in drugs because when we were thinking about where they come from, the whole kind of area that, that I didn't talk about was neurotransmitters. Mm. And I mean, we mentioned dopamine, but um, acetylcholine and, uh, and also serotonin, because I mean, that's a whole kind of level of that it's part of it. But I totally agree with what Ross has said is that it's not just you're missing dopamine or you've got too much of it. It's much more complicated than that. Um, so, and, and dopamine is quite an interesting point in that for a long time, everybody, I think there was a kind of feeling that, oh, well, hallucinations and Parkinson's, it's just, it's all the dopamine. That's what's causing it. And, and it, it's just not as simple as that. Um, one, one of my favorite models is um, it's Paul Fletcher's model. And I've probably, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but, but I, I think of it as sort of a salience um, knob that you can just, that dopamine just sort of winds up the salience of stuff that you see. So, um, like, you know, the tops of tomatoes can look like spiders sometimes. So uh, anybody, anything can look a bit, a bit like a, a hallucination if you just see it for a minute. But then if you're on a bit more dopamine, it will look just more salient. Um, and that's kind of my thinking, one of my thinking about, about dopamine, that it's not dopamine that causes it, but it will just ramp up the salience and then, and then you're more likely to hallucinate with dopamine. Um, and then with the other one, so acetylcholine, so if you... I mean, why do anticholinergics help in Parkinson's dementia? Well, they help a bit. If they really help, I mean, they don't completely solve it. But they also must be part of sort of fine-tuning perception. And then um, serotonin, I mean, this, this is such, it's so complicated, but it seems like connections between the thalamus and the rest of the brain are all fine-tuned by this kind of mixture of serotonin, um, actually neuroadrenaline as well. And, um, and, and it, it's this fine-tuning that, that happens in normal perception and possibly goes awry in PD dementia and in DLB. Mm. That's yeah. worth mentioning, Archie, as well, that you know, you've seen me draw this picture on the board at the start of those, those seminars. Um, if this is a disease which is ascending through the brainstem, 
these neuromodulators all come from the brainstem. The 5-HT, the raphae nuclei are there. And, and so by the time you've got acetylcholinergic you know, involvement, which may be worse than it is in Alzheimer's, mm. um, you've already had significant damage to your neuroadrenergic system, your 5-HT, and your dopamine in this SMPC, and, and several of those sort of brainstem nuclei. So there's, there's absolutely no point in us getting into tennis matches about you reduce the dopaminergic meds and I'll increase the... The, the uh, you know it's just it's just a waste of time and um and and rigid results in kind of entrenchment actually with the patient losing out so i think um uh n equals one experiments with both sides on board are quite useful um to see actually um you know what works in this individual with of course their agreement yeah and i think um f- from what like my experience is also that um Psychosis is, I'm much more familiar, and I think we all are much more familiar with psychosis um, and delusional thinking in patients with an established Parkinson's dementia syndrome. Um, Is that like, so there's there's enough nodding going on. Um, But there does seem to be something slightly different about the younger patient, often male, um, with intact cognition, however you choose to measure that, and you you can go hog wild on that. Um, I find them really tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I, I do feel there's more, those patients often seem to be like the younger, the male patient on a high dose agonist. Um, they maybe got some, I don't, know, like, don't mean dysregulation, they're kind of got impulsivity and um, gambling and compulsive spending and that kind of thing. Like, is, is that your experience? Like, I don't, maybe that's not your kind of typical patient, Christine, from your kind of background. Do you see them as well? I mean, I have done over my career, definitely. But yeah, I mean, it's an older population that I, that I work with currently. So I do wonder whether maybe the neurologists see more of that than we do perhaps with Dr. Skelly because the population are mm. a bit older. But um, yeah. And Ramona, do you find that... Um, I mean, is, is that sort of caricature, if that's the right word, a, a kind of relatively accurate one from your clinic? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Um, so I, I'm more and more, I'm seeing more the older ends because um, I, I'm kind of pulling out a lot of people, are, are sending me a lot of people with dementia. Um, but, and, and I agree that the, the, the psychosis feeling that I get in those patients is quite different from the ones that I was seeing in a, in a more kind of general movement disorder clinic where exa- exactly what you're describing, younger um, often male, often on high doses of agonists, and and actually some in some of those cases the the psychosis was was much more kind of uh, much more unpleasant in some ways mm. than in in the in the older. Um, I mean the, the delusions and hallucinations in the older patients are not always as as um, as difficult to manage. I don't know if you you guys agree with me about that. Yeah, or certainly less sort of pervasive. And I, I feel like yeah. the the younger male patients maybe the hallucinations it's less about visual hallucinations and it's more about this sort of abnormal thinking and the infidelity yeah. and the uh misidentification and the kind of suspiciousness and uh, and is that like ross i feel like you probably see quite a lot of this as well um yeah uh, again i'm an older psychiatrist so i do tend to see older people but in training what i've seen um uh, a few younger people like this and i suppose my question would be what what's driving you as a neurologist to put them on that much dopamine there's a trajectory of illness behind all that 
mm. which is a different story than the, the slow progression of a Parkinson's or the late onset of a Parkinson's. So, you know, there's something behind these people's trajectory of illness that adds to their risk. Um, and, you know, if you've, if, you've, if you've got somebody who's 45 and you've rattled through the dopamine and you're already on uh, the D3 agonist and, you've, you know, you've, you, they're already sort of um, ticking and, and, and stereotyping and, and twitching in your waiting room, uh, as well as, you know, spending all their money in petty power, you've got, you've got a different picture from somebody who 20 years later has developed a very slow burning neurological illness. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something else behind it probably as well in terms of the neuropathology and in terms of of uh, what's driving you to do your prescribing rather than just you nuking people with the dopamine yeah okay well i want to focus a wee bit on more familiar territory for all four of us then maybe and come to you christine which is thinking about uh an older patient with cognitive impairment who's coming to developing psychotic symptoms defined as you wish but predominantly visual things mm-hmm. um how are we going to kind of approach that uh from a kind of psychiatry perspective i think it's very different from what what i would do and probably better than what i would do. <laughs> what's your approach to it i'm interested to hear i mean i, I guess it's looking at what things might be able to be reversed quite easily. So in an older person, are there things that can be optimized um, that might reduce the symptoms? So, you know, excluding delirium and other unstable physical health conditions. So making sure that all of that's been looked at. Um, I think we, we did talk about the light bulb thing. So, you know, environmental, you know, occupational therapists are our, you know, very great friends in, in um, Parkinson's disease. So looking at the home, environment you know have people got patterned um curtains and you know flooring that's triggering um illusions or hallucinations and you know some very simple modifications at home might be able to start to to reduce the um the intensity of the symptoms um i, I think the sort of the psychoeducation bit um so we, we talked a bit about that testing out reality didn't we so if people are you know sort of um, you know describing symptoms <clears throat> how the carer can sort of help them to, to check out whether it is happening or, or not um, making sure that that people don't get overtired you know having a good structure to their sleep pattern those sorts of things so all, all those kind of environmental factors first optimizing physical health and then I think you start to move into then looking more at sort of medication and and, and that side of things so um, I'm probably not the best person to discuss about reviewing the Parkinson's medication, but I guess that might be the next sort of step mm. on on that process. And should um, should I be should I be starting medications, or should I be or should I be stopping medications? Do you think? <laughs> I, I, I think the review reviewing the Parkinson's meds does come higher up on that list, doesn't it? But I do take on board your comments about that. Um, you know, discussion about is it all down to the Parkinson's medication or not? And often we make adjustments and it doesn't re- resolve the issue. So I think that's the next logical step in, in the pathway before we move on to adding, you know, memory medication in or antipsychotic medication in. Hmm. Um, yeah. Like, uh, the, the, the founder actually of the, of the Parkinson's Academy or co-founder, Peter Fletcher, uh, I was doing a talk about, you know, treating Parkinson's, early Parkinson's, and I was getting into all this kind of, like, you know, you do this drug and it's an agonist or a monoamine oxygen inhibitor or levodopa and how, and, and Peter 
at the end of the session, he said, um, not really, nobody really knows what drug to start and when. And, you know, it's probably doesn't really matter. And I said, oh, thanks. It's a short talk. Um, but uh, he said, actually, you know, we, we don't really know that much about how to start drugs or who it's right for. But we, we have a clear idea of what order to stop them in. <laughs> and it seems like there's a kind of, without wishing to be vulgar, like a shit list of drugs. And there's some yeah. that float to the top and you're like, well, if you're in there, you're definitely coming out. Oxybutynin. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Top of my list. Oxybutynin. Um, you know, there's, there, there's a kind of like, so there's a group of drugs that are just absolutely toxic to the brain and are like a no, like no pun intended, like a no brainer to stop. Um, and they're not always dopamine drugs. In fact, often aren't. Mm. Um, so what? Yeah. So what should I be stopping? So you mentioned oxybutynin. I'll, I'll take. I'll take all contributions. The the twenty five milligrams of amitriptyline that was started for sleep. <laughs> and in fact, the problem with sleep is not um, an, an absence of anticholinergic function. I'll yeah. throw that in. Yeah, well, Ramona, have you got any any things that you always hunt out on the cardex? Well, uh, codeine is uh, any opiates, tramadol. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and anti, yeah, any anticholinergics. And there are quite a lot of hidden anticholinergics. I'm fed up of, there must be an awful lot of allergic people in the country because there's a heck of a lot of fexafenidine floating around in my patients' brains and kind of these kind of non-drowsy uh, antihistamine drugs, which are really, I think, pretty toxic and in their own right are pro-hallucinatory. Um, so uh, I, I quite like this idea. I had this idea in my head that there are drugs that are hard to stop in a hallucinating patient, like Rapinerol, like a dopamine, high dose dopamine agonist, you just know you're going to have an absolute nightmare because there's a reason why that patient ended up on that and their motor function is going to suffer. There are other ones that you think maybe are, maybe not going to make a big difference, but are dead easy to do without. And I feel like those are the ones to start with on the off chance that a minor miracle occurs, like the fexafenidine. There are better drugs than oxybutynin for bladder symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, there are better ways to manage pain than opiates. There are better ways to improve sleep than tricyclics. Um, so yeah, so I think that sort of decluttering non-dopaminergic drugs is kind of useful. Mm -hmm. um, of the of the parky medications, Ramona, because I think this probably kind of speaks to your strength as uh, more, um, which ones do you then think, all right, I, kinda, I wonder if I can get away without that one. Is there a kind of like wee list there? So, um, so I mean, there isn't, a, there's no kind of evidence base of how to do it, but there's kind of, I think you're, you're right. There's a, a mixture of the ones that are easiest to stop. And also, well, if, if anything was just started and clearly triggered it, then I think that's the, that's another mm. sort of easy way in. Um, I mean, amantadine is something, is something that's sort of not too difficult to stop quite often. Um, and then, yeah, if they're on an anticholinergic for tremor, then that's going to be sort of early on in my, in my hit list. Hmm. Um, and actually, I know that it depends on, on, on where people are in their kind of Parkinson's kind of journey. But if, if they're re relatively recently started on an agonist, then actually lowering the agonist can make quite a big difference to hallucinations. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not keen on agonists. And also I think they do worse in cognition as well. So you, you help the hallucinations and you help the cognition if you can lower those. I feel like my, my Parkinson's advanced symptom unit, PASU as it's called, 
needs to be renamed the kind of Repineral Reduction Service. Because yeah. it seems like I spent quite a lot of my time kind of navigating people off agonists that they've historically been on for quite a, quite a while. Mm-hmm. And of course, like it's a long disease. So like, you know, they, they don't have a dementia syndrome at the start of that process when they were on an agonist, but now they do have one. Yeah. That's really the last thing they need in there. Um, and it's kind of pairing it back to levodopa feels like that's. Yeah. The other interesting observation, um, Anita Schreiker, who I, who I work with, um, I, had made an observation that, and I don't know if, if you've seen this, but that there's a bunch of patients who initially have quite a lot of motor symptoms and need to be on the agonist. And then there comes a point when the cognition kind of takes over. And that quite often you, at that point, you actually, motor symptoms are just less of an issue. And it's mm. not that they don't want to walk. It, it's actually that some things have a changing in the disease process where the motor symptoms are just less of an issue. So you can get away with pulling back a little bit on the agonists. Yeah. I don't know if you've come up and seen that. Definitely, definitely. It's the, the, the balance of priorities massively shifts. Mm. Um, that's really helpful. I think, you know, that sort of idea of decluttering things is really useful, isn't it? Um, Christine, you, <laughs> we were talking a bit about antipsychotics and cholinesterase inhibitors. And I suppose most of our patients that we with a PD dementia syndrome um, you know, they're fluctuating and they're drowsy and their sleep-wake cycle is reversed and they're having these kind of florid visual hallucinations and it's all beginning to kind of mount up. Um, what's your sort of approach? Are you a, are you a cognitive enhancer first? Are you a kind of antipsychotic prescriber first? What's the, how do you approach that bit? I mean, de- definitely in co- cognitively in- impaired patient, I would go for a cognitive enhancer first. I guess I would ask the rest of you what, whether you would use cognitive enhancing medication in those younger patients with psychosis, because that's a question that mm. I have. I don't know whether those drugs have a role in, in, in that younger group. But yeah, so I would tend to go for rebostigmine patches first line. Um, right. And you, you go for the patch first? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, what sh- what are you telling patients or and or carers to expect from a cholinesterase inhibitor like rivastigmine or denepazole? What are you what's your kind of spiel? I, I think similar to what Ross said about you know setting expectations at a realistic level. Really, I mean they ca- they can be useful drugs in in some people and in other people they don't seem to to help at all. That's my experience. I don't know whether. Mm. the others would would agree with that so you know I, I guess that's what you have to tell people um you know so they've got realistic expectations um I would tend to titrate it up as you know far as we can go in terms of tolerability so up to 13.3 if 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 we can um and I would tend to do that first before antipsychotics although I would say if the person is more distressed and risks are escalating and things are getting more complex in that scenario, I might tend to go directly for an antipsychotic if I feel that things, you know, are getting more un- unmanageable. And again, I don't know whether colleagues would agree with that approach. Um, yeah. And if I feel like the cool nesters inhibitors are like a little minor miracle for some people. Yeah. Um, not Maybe not many, but and I don't know whether you feel this, Ramona. It feels like, and I think the studies would, early studies would sort of, would back this up. 
the the ones who kind of are maybe a little bit sort of drowsy in the daytime and fluctuating a bit and have quite florid visual hallucinations in the context of a Parkinson's dementia or, or a Lewy body dementia syndrome, they seem to do pretty well on a cholinesterase inhibitor. Is it, yeah, that was, I mean, so David Byrne's trial showed that if, if you're hallucinating and you get put on rivastigmine, that's the group that do better cognitively. Hmm. Um, I mean, the night you, you asked about what words we use. I learned, one of our nurses said that she, she talks about just a boost. So I talk about just a boost in cognition. When it works, it's a little boost. It's, a, it's about as, as good. Um, I don't know. I, I have a, a, I think it's kind of, it's quite mixed. So some people, there is just a bit of an improvement. Um, some people don't really notice anything at all. Mm. And I, have, I reckon that it's around, I don't know, 20%, maybe or 30% who, who get quite bad um, Parkinsonian side effects or worsening confusion mm. um, on, I thought initially it was rivastigmine, but I, I'm seeing it also on Dinepazil. Are you, do, you, do you see that as well? Yeah, yeah quite a lot of bladder problems, uh, yeah. tre bad tremor and bladder problems. And of course, you kind of expect that a wee bit, but um, yeah. but obviously the patients have those already. Yeah, um, but exacerbating that feels yeah. pretty unpleasant. And it, but it can be dose related. So it's quite, it's not just that they had it and it's, it's quite convincing that they start it and then they're suddenly incontinent. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I, my preference actually, Christine, is, is Dinepazil um, yeah. once at night, um, uh, partly because it's a once a day medication and the rivastigmine when it's tablets twice a day. Um, I do use quite a lot of the patch as well, but I, my first line is Dinepazil. It's incredibly cheap as well, isn't it? And um, and easy to titrate. And uh, so so that's that's been our kind of practice in side for quite a while um but that's not to you know we, we do use plenty of rivastigmine as well um and and what about memantine because that's you know another question that i have mm. i mean i do use it <laughs> but i don't know mm -hmm. there's not really an evidence base is there to, to tell us one way or or the other so uh, uh, ross what's your what's your take on on memantine either on its own or i i mean i often added into a cholinesterase inhibitor these yeah. days I mean, my constant, I'm a risk benefit prescriber. So um, I think that the risks with memantine are low. If you've no history of seizures and you don't have um, overwhelming constipation, it does worsen constipation mm. and you don't have blood pressure that's teetering on the blink of a, a brink of 100 or 200, uh, 180 or 200 systolic, then I think we can manage your side effects with memantine and it's generally very benign. Generally, you don't see very many problems with it. And for people given, I tend to give it once at night, um, can improve sleep significantly um, and can, again, I think it's a smaller subgroup of people who do really quite well with it, but it, it, it probably is reducing that glutamatergic excitability, which, which may add to, to hallucinations. And rivastigamine and memantine together, I've had some success with, along with deprescribing other stuff. So I think sometimes if you're tilting that seesaw in favor of cholinergic tone, in you know, and, and, and sort of reducing some of that glutamatergic excitability, that can work nicely for some people. It's not revolutionary, but it's, as we're probably going to come to, it's better than tripling the risk of, of uh, stroke at three months, you know. So it, 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 it's, it's, Mike, it, it's a, sometimes a kick to touch strategy for we'll see how you get on on this. And, and you know, often people come to me when things are at their worst. And so regression to the mean is the doctor's friend. I think sometimes things are getting better anyway, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a question about, you know, why use the patch first? I think 
Um, Christine, what's your, have you got a kind of rationale for that? Just, I mean, p- partly because it's once a day instead of taking twice a day tablets, mm. partly because it causes much less gastrointestinal issues. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, there's good theoretical reasons for it, Archie. The rivastigmine um, binds uh, really, really well and really over long term to the enzyme. Um, acetylcholinesterase. Um, so it, it, it's in-brain sort of activity half-life is quite long, but its peaks and troughs in the plasma are, are really high and really low. So if you're on the tablets, you're not getting a constant stream into your blood and your CSF. Your gastro side effects are terrible. Um, and so I really avoid the, the pill. The episode's much better if I'm going to put people on pills. Mm. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, in terms of so, you know, I think yeah, optimizing cognition where there is a cognitive impairment, that seems pretty clear. Um, you'd asked the question, Christine, and actually others have as well on the stream. I'm sorry, I feel like I haven't answered. It was just a flurry of questions. It's hard to keep <laughs> keep my train of thought on the structure of the discussion and, and answer the questions. But a uh, question about like cholinesterase inhibitors in patients without cognitive impairment and hallucinations. Any thoughts or observations from any anybody really on that one i i think if you look hard enough you'll find cognitive impairment in parkinson's disease mm. um you know the the studies on mci and parkinson's bear this out uh, uh we don't use sensitive enough tests um and we don't you know we don't we, it's particularly missing attention concentration and this executive syndromes early on so i'm, I'm dubious about about people without cognitive cognitive components, certainly a dopamine disexecutive component in Parkinson's disease. But you're talking about people without a dementia syndrome. Um, you're using it off license. Um, if if your choice is that or an antipsychotic, antipsychotics are pretty bad side effects. You can get diabetes off them. You can get um, it's very pretty severe apathetic syndromes. They you know they. There's lots of bad side effects of antipsychotics. So I'm inclined to go, I'm not rigid about it. Mm. And if there's risk, as Christine says, I'm, I might go somewhere else first. But I'm inclined to try something a bit more benign first. Yeah. Yeah. Ramona, thoughts on? Yeah. I mean, I tend to see people who are a bit older where there is a dementia syndrome. Um, but, but I do have people who, I mean, you do a mini mental and they're 29 out of 30, but you know that that's not, that's not their base, that they probably are better than mm. that. Um, so, so there, I think it's a no-brainer that you would use a cholinesterase inhibitor. Um, I think the question was possibly about kind of somebody in their forties um, with kind of florid delusions. Um, I think you're right, Ross. I totally agree with you. If you look hard enough, there there is there are cognitive problems all, all the way through Parkinson's. Um, but I think it's you're you're less likely to get a benefit in that younger group. Um, yeah, certainly my experience has been that you know it's a rule of the dice, isn't it? And, I, and it's a pragmatic rule of the dice. I, I don't think I've seen anybody really do very well where there hasn't been a, a, an obvious kind of Lewy body dementia, DLB, PDD kind of syndrome with the kind of fluctuations and the drowsiness and all that kind of other bits and bobs that we're familiar with. Um, but yes, optimizing cognition is reasonable. I guess that then leads us inevitably to the thorny issue of antipsychotic medication um in general and the even thornier issue of why the hell we aren't using clozapine more which is <laughs> there have been a couple of questions about that but like christine so like um why did you bother 
going through the birthing pains of a clozapine service for Parkinson's, like what possessed you? It just, it just seems if, if the treatment that's got the best evidence base for treating psychosis isn't available, then we need to look at why it's not available. And um, I mean, it, it, it has become a bit of a labour of love, really. It's not, you know, easy to overcome the barriers, as you know. Um, you know, our policy now straddles two hospital trusts, involves a mental health pharmacy and, and a Parkinson's service in the acute hospital. So it's, you know, it's a... It's a challenging thing to, to set up, but I, I did um, a research project with Parkinson's UK where they funded um, my input into the clinic for, for a year and we kept um, sort of details about the sorts of um, patients that, that I was seeing and the theme that kept coming through was about complex psychosis and that people had reached that ceiling of available treatments, their quetiapine, you know, they're on rivastigmine quetiapine, it's been nudged up as far as they can tolerate there isn't anywhere else to go next and and you know before you say right that's it we can't do anything else for you you know there is a treatment that could potentially you know have a massive impact on their quality of life so I don't think it's good enough just to say it's difficult to prescribe I think we have to look at ways that that you know we can set services up so and if I can take it like a step back from that just to say that um, it's unusual I think to have anybody from a mental health service embedded in a Parkinson's service, mm. sadly, sadly unusual. Uh, and then we have a CPN in our service, um, which is fab and amazing and brilliant. Um, how did, how did you, how, like, how did you, did, I mean, did you go to Rob and the Rob, team or did Rob, they get, how did they get your uh, hooks into you? Rob, Rob has a long history of, of hosting specialist regs in old age psychiatry. So, right. it, you know, it's been a truly multidisciplinary team in that way for, for many years. And so I did clinics for three years as a registrar and then sort of just, you know, ca carried on um, from there really. But the clozapine service that we've set up, we have structured it so that if I don't have input into the clinic, Rob, could run the service as the named prescriber as, as a geriatrician and the mental health trust pharmacy would continue to support with um, supplying the medication and, and the, you know, the monitoring arrangement. So the service won't be reliant on having a psychiatrist in, in the clinic. Um, hmm. And I mean, certainly our, I'm a clozapine prescriber from within our service and we, we don't have any, we have some really amazingly helpful psychiatrists in, in the region who've been, incredibly helpful but um, we don't have somebody kind of resident and kind of attached to the clinic apart from our cpn um so i think there are different models to do it aren't there but um i mean there are probably quite a few people on the call well i mean obviously everybody's interested in psychosis because there's you know 130 plus people listening to us blether on about it but um maybe not so many familiar with or comfortable with clozapine um like what is it about clozapine that is deemed to be so kind of challenging and difficult from a psychiatry perspective it's the lack of experience of prescribing it in this patient mm. group that's that's certainly the thing that that's driven my own anxiety about it is not having prescribed it in in older patients with, with parkinson's um I mean, the other aspects that are difficult are patients have to go for their weekly blood tests. 
and and then you know the, we've had a lot of discussion with our policy about how much physical monitoring we need to do when we initiate treatment and obviously we've liaised with yourself about your experiences with that so I think there's a lot of a, a sense that there's a lot of barriers there but when you break it down the barriers are you know you can overcome them um, but yeah my, my own anxieties is about the, the physical observation monitoring because normally when we use clozapine we're using it in younger people for schizophrenia we're doing very rapid dose titrations on an inpatient ward where they're having their obs checked every hour but in Parkinson's we're talking about a completely different way of using clozapine we're using tiny doses we're not titrating it you know might not change the dose for two weeks um, you know, so it's it's just a completely different use of the medication, and I think it's empowering clinicians to feel comfortable to to use it and, and to do that. Sorry, Neil, can I ask a question? If I'm not the host, of course you can. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I've got I've got I've had for quite a long time quite serious FOMO of of Archie of, of your use of um, of clozapine, and I'm totally awestruck, Christine, by, by you using it. Um, I just wondered if um, could either or both of you write up your experience so that well, what a topical question Archie. <laughs> <laughs> we're just in the process of drafting a paper oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I, although I feel a bit of a fraud because we haven't had any patients go through the service yet because of, right. because of COVID so don't tell anybody that yeah um no but we I will, think we will I think there's this kind of unholy trinity that I think is really difficult where you have Parkinson's services that sit within acute medical kind of model. And they're either care of the elderly or neurology uh, with fantastic Parkinson's nurses and MDTs. And we are just like, so on all the symptoms. We just feel really familiar with Parkinson's and all the chaos it brings and the bladder problems and the drowsiness and the falls and the blood pressure, autonomic dysfunction, the cognition, the so like we're just like, wow, yeah, 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 we know all about that. Um, and we're very, very familiar with the dopaminergic drugs and all the other bits of both too. Um, then you've got like adult mental health services, it feels like, who are like, clozapine, yeah, we love clozapine, like, you know, it's a fantastic drug. We use it lots in young patients. They're like rapid sequence titrations of these kind of clozapine, young schizophrenic patients. It's awesome awesome drug and we've got all this amazing infrastructure to monitor it and then you've got like mental health services for older people who've got this kind of uh deep understanding of dementia syndromes and have like community reach into patients and see people in their kind of home environments and have like a, a kind of very kind of multidisciplinary team approach to kind of that cognition problem but have like no familiarity with Parkinson's really and all the kind of ridiculous drugs we prescribe and they, like eight times a day and it has to be at quarter past seven in the morning, da 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 da. And, and, and also like this kind of this fear of clozapine because that's for young schizophrenic patients and it has like, and, and if you put somebody in clozapine, they'll definitely die <laughs> or something, you know. Yeah. And I feel like everybody's got like a piece of the puzzle coming back to your jigsaw analogy earlier, but nobody's got all of it yeah and one of the problems with older old age psychiatrists i think they do jump to the conclusion they're going to be putting people on 750 milligrams of clozapine mm. whereas in fact what you need to do is put a tablet under their <laughs> under their pillow stand at the door and whisper clozapine you know like we're talking <laughs> homeopathic doses of clozapine here um 
and and really slow titrations. And I think that I don't know what your experience is, Christine, but that kind of swage people's fears no end. Mm. You know, you're talking about thirty-seven point five milligrams of clozapine. I probably would give that a go, even in you know, yeah, Freddy score five. And yeah, certainly over uh, over time. So we start just so just for those listening, we start on six point two five milligrams at night, uh, which is a quarter tablet for those not familiar with it, which is annoying for the pharmacy. Um, after a fortnight, I might increase it to twelve and a half. And if I'm feeling really gung ho thereafter, I might double it to twenty five. Um, and I've scarcely anybody on over 50 milligrams. I've got a few, but, um, you know, so like, uh, in terms of titration, it's really slow. And I think that's you, you, cause, cause it's such a hard drug to get people on. I feel like if, if, if then when you decide to go for it, you do to the dose too high, then you have no way back from that. And you're better off with a start low, go slow, get every, but like dip a toe in the ocean. Am I going for a swim in this sea of clozapine or not? Sort of thing. <laughs> that's my feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's worked well. Uh, and then you don't need the daily observations and the daily blood pressure and pulse and for the first fortnight that you typically do for, you know, community titration. Um, at least that's kind of how we've kind of we, we've sort of morphed to that over several years in Teesside. Um, but the, the crucial bit is getting the monitoring nailed. Um, would you say that's the same, Christine, for you? Like the idea of, of you know, the, yeah. that, that the governance around that's that's the most crucial bit, really, isn't it? Yeah. And, and so because our policy is joined across two trusts, it's had to go through two drug and therapeutics committees. Um, you know, sort of where, where you know the respons- clinical responsibility lies, and all of those things. But, but as you say, the infrastructure is there in the mental health trust to to do the blood result monitoring and to do the dispensing. So that side of it is, you know, is relatively straightforward. It's just how do you treat with the clozapine in in the clinical setting, and and that's I guess where there isn't so much experience. So, hopefully, it will be good to pull together your experience of prescribing mm. it with, with other people. So, you know, other services can have more confidence in trying to put services together. Yeah. And I think there's a range of questions around, you know, is there a liquid form of clozapine? Uh, and there is um, called denzapine. Um, mm. I've not used that because it doesn't seem really, we've never really had an occasion to, to need that. Uh, it's a different monitoring setup for in terms of the, you know, obviously the CPMS is the main one, isn't it, for, for Clozaril. Um, so we've not had to do that. Uh, there's a question about cost. I think it's about 12p. The, the, the drug costs, are, are, I mean, the, the, ser- <laughs> the service line agreement between the two pharmacists to, to set up the clozapine service, that the drug costs are not an issue <laughs> hmm. compared with most drugs that we prescribe. So, yeah. Um, and I've even, uh, just to kind of really throw the cat among the pigeons, I've had some patients who have died on clozapine, not because of clozapine, but have been have come to the end of their life um, because of advanced Parkinson's, but had florid psychosis throughout the last few years of their life. Um, and we've managed their palliative needs with the inclusion of clozapine and had specific um, 
documentation to absent them from the need for monitoring um, for months. Um, And we felt that although that there is a theoretical risk for that, that the, if they hadn't developed the agranulocytosis for several years, they were on a very low dose and doing the blood test would have been distressing, but stopping the clozapine would have led them to be psychotic and dying as opposed to calm and dying. So we, you know, it, it is actually even possible in very frail patients approaching the end of their life with distressing psychotic symptoms. It, I, I like, I think it's a reasonable I had a discussion today with somebody about that, uh, you know, who lives in the middle of nowhere in the North Yorkshire Moors and has very bad DLB with psychosis. Um, and we, no, we decided not to do it in the end, but it was, uh, that was one of the questions was, you know, we could do this with a palliative label attached. Um, and, it, you know, we're, we're, we're big on the risks of clozapine, but we're not talking about the risks of not treating these patients properly. I think the other thing to, to bear in mind is that we, we think clozapine is a more risky treatment, but in, in terms of things like postural hypertension, quetiapine is probably you know just as bad, if not worse, but we don't worry about doing monitoring when we start that or, mm. you know, so I think it all has to be, you know, considered in you know, the whole yeah. really. I can remember as a medical student, patients being admitted to the cardiology ward to start an ACE inhibitor. Um, and that was the like for the first dose hypotension of captopril, and of course, like if you if you try to admit anybody now to a cardiology ward to start them on perindopril, people you'd be laughed out of the hospital. Um, yeah, so I think yeah, you know, familiar as as we get more familiar, I think you know we, we I think we clozapine is is a good the nice guidance. It's worth mentioning the nice guidance on this, which is basically that. Uh, there's an absence of evidence for quetiapine in the main. Is that right, Ross? You're always my like evidence guru for these things, but um, but it's considered like the first line option in the nice guidance. Yeah, so there's a, it's theoretically driven by the easiest way I can describe it is the stickiness of the molecule. So um, uh, there's a lot of work done in a really good Nature paper, like from like two years ago, eighteen months ago, on the dissociation constant of all the dopamine. Um, uh, I, antagonists and essentially if we reduce it to the stickiness at the receptor um your 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 dopamine blocking is proportionate to how uh, quick that or or this inversely proportionate how quick that on off is if it's a very quick on off at the receptor your own dopamine can get through and you won't have so many freezing symptoms fault etc um but if it's a very sticky molecule like haloperidol, um, nothing's getting through, and that's where you're going to have a very severe worsening and a, a dopaminergic crisis, essentially, um, and uh, very severe uh, side effects. So, catiapine so, so, is uh, of the easier to prescribe ones, least sticky, but clozapine is by a almost an order of magnitude less sticky than that again. Um, so, um, sorry, that's a very um, uh, layman's uh, description of it, but there's a really good nature, nature, nature communications paper on it with, with um, relating some of the um, odds ratios for side effects in a meta-analysis of, of clinical trials and also doing some um, some laboratory work in microenvironments that was just beautiful. So um, uh, really convincing sort of uh, 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 basic science data. Um, so I, I would I would not go with anything stickier than cotiapine, really. Um, I have on occasion um, for people with, um, who didn't respond used extraordinarily low dose risperidone, but, mm-hmm. but with, with grave reservations, we say. I'm 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 dead against aripiprazole and 
the kind of like sort of funny atypical ones. I, I've I've had nothing but negative experiences with those. Is that? It's a partial agonist, and it's going to behave like a partial agonist. So it may drive some symptoms, and um, um, it's not a great antipsychotic. I've got to be honest; it's safe. So it's not cardiotoxic and it doesn't cause all the metabolic syndromes. So if you want to do nothing, arapiprazole's an okay idea. But no, yeah. I've, no but I mean, I've, I've had patients get really sick on it. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure it is all that safe in, that, had, in this I've, group. I've had a few patients develop movement, you know, tremors and drug-induced um, issues on it um, that don't have Parkinson's. So, and yeah, I've seen some quite nasty side effects with it as mm. well. And it is considered more benign drug than some of the antipsych- other antipsychotics, but I think my view on that has changed okay. a bit yeah, over an, time as well. Inter- I mean, because I think we, we reach for these, we think we've got to try something and I can't get clospidine. <laughs> so, so I'll do that. Um, so, uh, okay, that's useful to know. I think, yeah, so... Uh, uh, I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I even used quetiapine. Now, I've gone almost, I'm like Kurtz in, you know, like apocalypse. Now I've got so, so, I'm so far up the river of clozapine. I'm like gone completely clozapine native. Um, okay. Um, I think... I wanted, I mean, there are lots of questions. I'm maybe going to scroll through some of these questions, just see um, if we can kind of uh, kind of cover any of the ones we haven't gone There's a very complicated one, which is right up your street, Ross. Uh, it's it's from our neuropsychologist consultant. I think it's gone now. Oh, it might have gone now. Sorry. <laughs> it might have been dismissed as too complicated. <laughs> Sorry, Jason, if you're on the call. Um, there, Jason was asking about priors and... Um... Carl Friston's model, I think, um, a, a Bayesian model of the brain. That's and, the one. Uh, yeah, I think that's too complicated. Is it? All right. Sorry, Jason, yeah. you got binned. Um, it's, it's a really interesting idea, though, that we're sort of Bayesian machines integrating information into a into a posterior model. But I, 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 it's one for over over points. I won't try and explain it, but but we did a little experiment on that, showing showing people who hallucinate pictures. Um, that they uh, sort of like images that you can only that if you've seen once you've seen them then you can recognize them but until you see them then they you can't understand them and we found that people who hallucinate did over rely on on previous information mm-hmm. um, and it was quite nice because it's quite nice to, people who hallucinate you expect they've got dementia they've got all these other problems are they ever going to be better at something and, and actually they were uh, mm-hmm. with, with these with these images there's a, a really excellent question from somebody here um do we still need to separate DLB and PDD on the basis of the duration of the cognitive decline in relation to the motor symptoms? Um, Ramona, what's your, how do you, how do you, how do you pull that apart? Yeah, I mean, the, so DLB, dementia with living bodies, it's meant to be that you've got your dementia first or within one year of your Parkinson's symptoms. And PDD is that you've had Parkinson's for longer than a year until you get your dementia. And, and there's some patients that are clearly in either of those groups. Um, so people who've had Parkinson's for like 10 years and then they get their dementia. Um, and, and also you, there is quite conveniently, there's, a, there's an umbrella term, Lewy body dementia, that covers both. Mm. So um, sometimes you, you can just put people in that group. But, but I, I think there's a, there's a quite large group, and, and this is actually a big group of people that I see in my clinic who who are in a weird grey zone, um, who maybe they've had Parkinson's for a year and a half or two years, mm. and then they get their dementia. And their dementia looks just like DLB. 
and, and I, I think that's I think that's a group where it's clearly this one year cutoff is is arbitrary. Biology doesn't believe doesn't follow clear cutoffs like that. Um, so I, I think that, that I mean they're, they're, we are still using those terms because there are still the groups that are on either end of the spectrum. Um, but there's a big sort of grey zone. And I think just to add to that, it, it, in terms of when the dementia starts, it also depends a bit who's looking for it. So um, there's quite a lot of patients who, who, who are sitting in a, in a Parkinson's clinic and, and people don't always have to have a chance or, have, have, or think about whether they might have dementia. But if you, if you then do enough, and what Ross was saying earlier, if you, if you do a, a detailed or sensitive enough test, you'll pick up some dementia. So it's like who's asking and, 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 the, and things not really following exact one year rules that I, I think that I predict that in the next few years, we'll start to redefine these diseases better. Uh, which is actually a really nice segue then into some, there are quite, quite a few questions pinging about, about like neuropathology, which might be just going off down too much of a rabbit hole. But um, I, I sort of like this notion, if I can introduce this concept to the, to the people still, still, still standing, um, this kind of proteinopathy notion for neurodegeneration and the notion that, um, you know, there are tauopathies and synuclonopathies. And um, although that's too simplistic for a lot of stuff, but the, there is something very similar about some of the autonomic features of synuclonopathies like multiple system atrophy, DLB, Parkinson's disease. Um, and the notion that in the brain there is an accumulation of a toxic protein, alpha-synuclein, which obviously clumps into Lewy bodies if the cell is able to put it into something like that. Um, and there have been some questions um, that some of you might have seen around, like, you know, what's next treatment-wise? Monoclonal antibodies, like anti-synuclein therapy. So, like, you were talking, Ross, earlier about we need to get better at diagnosing these conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So are you, by that, are you meaning um, picking up synuclein somehow in so, a synucleinopathy um, patient? Yeah, I mean, it's important to, again, the harder we look, the more noise we find. So nature is absolutely no respecter of our labels whatsoever. And if you look at things like the, the motor to cognitive onset, the cognitive motor onset, the earlier, the, the shorter your, your, your gap between motor onset of Parkinson's and cognitive onset of illness, the more tau you actually have in your brain. This is Irwin's study from 2017, published in the Lancet Neurology, gorgeous post-mortem study, but very clearly these diseases overlap. And of course they do. They have a common risk factor, which is age, um, oxidative damage to the brain probably. But in order for them to be completely separate, they have to be protective against each other. And they're not. So about 20% of people at post-mortem who have dementia with Lewy bodies will have significant Alzheimer's findings, teopathy, and vice versa. And that's a rough figure, but you know, averaging mm -hmm. studies, that's more or less what you find. So even in people in whom you know, we do a lumbar puncture and we find that their amyloid beta is you know significantly under a thousand or ab42 is under a thousand on their under csf and perhaps maybe we get it a high um phosphatau and we decide yeah this is really like an alzheimer's disease when by the time you follow those people to death 20 percent of them have Lewy body disease as well so the idea that we're going to be able to use one monoclonal antibody in all of these people is probably a bit of a it's a bit of a, um, a misnomer really we're probably going to be using you know multiple therapeutics in these people when we finally get them and you know we're we're not a million miles away from getting something that works a bit okay um and and i think that that sort of makes sense to me now i come to think of it because um 
there does seem to be a difference in my experience from like the patient you're seeing uh, in their early 60s with PD dementia and, and psychotic symptoms who was diagnosed at the age of 40. And they have a really pure feeling Lewy body syndrome with um, the kind of cognitive fluctuations and hallucinations and that and have kind of really pretty good kind of memory functions. And, you know, that, that's different. Seems very different to the 80 year old who within three years of a motor syndrome has then developed significant cognitive problems and gait and balance and hallucinations and in my mind, that's always been because there's more going on than the Lewy body sinuclein story. So does that, is that sort of, is that what you're hinting at? That's, yeah, that's borne out. That's, that's, that's very much borne out. And also our biomarkers are, are, are not as good the older you get. So the specificity of these Alzheimer's biomarkers, for example, falls off with age. I wouldn't be doing them on anybody over 85, really, because you wouldn't know what you were finding. Um, mm. and, and the same will be true of, of, of alpha-synuclein biomarkers when they, when they come to market. Um, uh, which is that, you know, if you do them on somebody over 95 or somebody with Alzheimer's in the second half of their illness, then you might be more than likely to find a, 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 some, some uh, alpha-synucleinopathy there. And that doesn't mean that your primary disease driver, or your primary, let's say your primary symptom driver is this particular proteinopathy. So we're going to have to become much more nuanced about how we think about these illnesses. But that's no harm. It's happened in other areas of medicine. That's the time we got away from the dementia label and started thinking about neurodegenerative diseases as a spectrum really. Mm. Gosh, who's going to do all these tests, I wonder? Well, you know I do lumbar punctures, right? <laughs> I know. I, I think I did know that. Also, these proteins are all interacting with each other. So, and we know that sort of from in vitro studies, um, but and also actually the Owen study that you mentioned. They, they, these, and actually, there's this very strong age effect. So, the older you are when you get Parkinson's, the more likely you are to get dementia. And I, I, I did, I, my kind of best model for that is that as we all get older, we accumulate amyloid, and if you then introduce alpha-synuclein into that brain, it's going to spread much more rapidly, and they. Yeah. That you're going to see an interaction in, in the cells, so there's a synergy. And, and we know this also from the um, the Compta work that tau and alpha synuclein and amyloid together, that's very highly predictive for, for dementia. Mm. It's all of these interacting and, and doing damage. There was a question a while ago about uh, do you treat hallucinations that are not distressing and are potentially pleasant? Uh, um, yeah, don't 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 go there. Um, I have a chap who um, actually used to. He's a illustrator of very well known cartoons that I read as a kid, but also that he did lots of other stuff, kind of uh, voluptuous superhero like clad superhero illustrations, and he sees quite a lot of um, very uh, kind of tantalising female hallucinations around his house. And um, we I mean we've offered to treat them, <laughs> but you can guess what he said. Um, you know, he's not in the least bit bothered. And um, and I think you know, I've had a really the, the most striking hallucination I ever saw that 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 somebody didn't really want to lose was a little boy and a girl um, who would kind of sometimes he was annoyed at them because they'd take up the seats, but he said one time he'd spilled something like some liquid on the floor from that he was cooking or his kettle or something. And they were standing, ushering him around the puddle um, in case he slipped and fell. And from that moment on, he was basically tied into those two kids and he didn't want them treated at all. So uh, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't treat things that aren't 
significantly symptomatic. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of cotyping anxiety. Now we've generated quite a lot of cotyping. I'm sorry, everybody, about that. Um, there's a question about what are red flags to assess, you know, when management in the community is no longer safe. Hmm. Christine, do you, do you do you kind of risk? How do you kind of manage that risk? Are there patients that you would look to admit? Ever. I think there certainly are a group of patients that end up getting admitted in crisis where the psychosis has gone perhaps undetected by clinicians or, you know, for whatever reason, and then they perhaps end up <clears throat> getting assessed under the Mental Health Act. <clears throat> so I, I have seen quite a lot of people that have ended up in hospital with, with you know, very uh, florid psychosis because the risks have escalated. Um, I would hope in the majority of patients, though, that we are engaging them in the clinic to do a risk assessment as part of our assessment. And I guess it's that discussion with the person and their family about, you know, what impact it's having and, and, and what the risks are relating to the symptoms. So I, I think, as we've said already, those patients that have more of the delusional ideas probably are at the more uh, risky end of the spectrum. That would be my um, experience. But I think you have to just talk to the person and do a risk assessment as, as we would with anything really. I worry a wee bit in that case that I, I'm, we've, we've hardly ever had anybody admitted um, to the psych wards really in the last few years. The only, the only one patient we had admitted was when the clozapine was accidentally stopped. Um, when I went on holiday, note to self, never go on holiday. But, um, <laughs> but um I think that it seems to me like um, most, I, I feel like my patients are at lower risk from a psychosis in a dementia syndrome of Parkinson's than a psychosis in a younger patient with schizophrenia. Um, like intuitively, am I, am I being naive about that? Do you think? I think they tend to have a, on the whole would have family living with them, wouldn't they? Or, you know, mm. carers or, or whatever. Um, you know, so it, I guess it, you have to look at what circumstances they're in at home and and how things are going. I guess there's just a few patients over the years that have been very memorable that yeah. I can remember that have had Parkinson's psychosis. So maybe that skewed um, my view a little bit on that. And obviously I'm going to be seeing the more um, unwell end of the spectrum as well um, Ross, for, them to, for them to get into secondary care. Services. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about kind of your inpatient experience with COVID earlier, but um, you know, do, you, do you admit many patients with Parkinson's psychosis? And, and I see a lot of people. Why? I see people who, for whom care is broken down in a care home hmm. um, because the care home is ill-equipped to, uh, to manage uh, the symptoms of psychosis and they don't. Again, they're, 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 their model of what Parkinson's is and, and, and what, what to expect. Um, did not include um, florid visual hallucinations and acting on them, um, and uh, just the level of sleep disturbance that you sometimes see, um, and all the other things that can go with with a Parkinsonian syndrome later on, pain of unexplained nature, and um, and various things like that. So I see care, that level of care breakdown, and um, those are some of the people I've used clozapine in um, to some success, um, and in some cases. Um, having to negotiate a real minefield of um, care home administration of clozapine and things like that, which, which has been extraordinarily difficult. Mm. Um, 
I mean, I think if I reflect on the changes that, that over the last sort of five or 10 years as a consultant in our service up in Teesside, I mean, there are obviously things that, are, they, that have added value across the board, but one of the things that has had, certainly had the biggest impact has been having the ability to use clozapine and being able to reach for that for a, a relatively small number of patients. I, I mean, it's no more than 25 patients in the last five years I've treated with clozapine out of a base of about 1,200. So for those on the call that are thinking about this sort of slippy slope about the number of patients that kind of, you know, am I going to open a floodgate? I don't think that's the case. Um, you, I mean, you're shaking your head in agreement, mm. kind of, Christina. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, because that is a worry, numbers. isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be small, small numbers that, that are likely to need clozapine, definitely. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to, uh, to try and wrap it up because it's, after 10 o'clock and I've taken up a lot of everybody's evening. Um, traditionally, so we've been doing some podcasts on, 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 uh, on the Tease Neuro uh, website, um, largely because uh, education seemed to have died a death for our trainees. And I know this is a, this is a grander themed uh, uh, event this evening with, with more people. Um, but one of the questions I've asked everybody that I've done a podcast, Tease Neuro podcast with so far has been like, if you had some advice for your first year registrar self knowing what you know now as an established consultant what would that advice be and i'm sorry to spring this on you <laughs> but Do you like, mean could, general advice if, if you yeah, general well, advice about medicine just yeah whatever yeah i mean so like if you could speak to your, your slightly younger trainee self setting out on your path like what would you what would you wish you knew then that you now know get better at saying no earlier on in your career <laughs> holding <laughs> holding strong boundaries yeah okay speaking from business she sits here doing a, a podcast at 10 o'clock on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah yeah sorry for that and also yeah having just set up a clozapine <laughs> clinic i'm not sure you're the person to say no yeah. <laughs> but yeah okay so yeah knowing yes that's good knowing, Ross? Know, knowing when to say no i think okay. that's perhaps a better way of putting it yeah difficult skill that I've yeah. not mastered yet. Um, Ross, have you got a, a kind of sage wisdom for your younger self? Um, Keep it clean. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, that's impossible, Archie. That's a terrible question. I, um, 10 years ago, uh, read more. Read more what? I have everything. Everything. Read more. And, you, like, and uh, I think I know the answer to this because you've said everything, but like, you don't just mean academic journals. and. Uh, if you're reading Beckett, you're learning about senescence and dementia and memory and human experience. There's nothing that you can't read that will not teach you something about medicine and, and human life. So read more. I'm on Tintin and Asterix at the minute. And that's ostensibly because my children like it. <laughs> so do I turns out but yeah so read more say learn know when, know when to say no read more I like these Ramona so mine's keep asking questions so I've always been somebody who I, I'm not shy of asking advice when I don't know and I often don't know I think I thought that I was in, when I became a consultant I would know but I mm. don't know so I keep asking and um, and I think if you keep asking you you start to learn so yeah, don't be afraid to ask questions. There's no such thing as a bad question. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, except the one that goes unanswered, unasked, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that's the question to regret, I think. That's fantastic. Um, everybody uh, on the call, thank you so much. Uh, for the love of God, finish, says Ross Dunn to me privately. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to keep that in the podcast. Uh, right. Well, we're going to draw to a close. Um, but um, thank you, everybody that dialed in. Um, thank you for everybody that sacrificed so much of their Thursday evening. Uh, and I hope to see you all again very soon. And that's the show, folks. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. I certainly learned a lot. Thanks to Christine Taylor, Ramona Weil and Ross Dunn for giving up so much of their time. And thanks also to the Neurology Academy for helping organise and publicise it. Uh, normally, this is a Tease Neuro solo podcast, which is very amateur R and small scale. Sticking to the psychiatry psychology theme uh, the next one is going to be functional neurological disorders with dr ros murray from glasgow and dr jason price from our very own t side <laughs>